Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore human rights abuses and efforts to seek accountability, transparency, and access to remedy for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to protecting and defending the rights of others, talking about what they're working on and how and why they chose to pursue their fight against corporate injustice. Say you are a, a broadcaster and you are filming a, a sports event, say a tennis match or something, in a particular country where free expression is not permissible, or potentially if you do express yourself freely or the, as the media, there are consequences for your staff. Say you're filming a tennis match and a, a protest starts, a pro-democracy protest starts. Do you keep the camera on that? You're there as a sports broadcaster. You're not there as a as a, as, as the news. Do your commentators address this issue in their commentary? Hey everyone! So for today's episode, it's uh, myself and Olga uh, sitting with William Rook. So William is a deputy chief executive of the Center for Sports and Human Rights. Now, this organization is not that common at this point. They are working on a bit of a novel topic when it comes to human rights in sports. So without any further ado, let's just jump into the conversation and find out more about the organization and the processes, how they are dealing with these kind of issues. Um, so Olga, please, let's start. William, welcome to the rights of others. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So it's very uh, good to have you here, to have you back in Greenwich. And we'll talk about how um, you part of this uh, corporate human rights accountability, business and human rights, or human rights and business, as you say, um, journey started, uh, or at least had a stage here at the, at the University of Greenwich. And uh, to start with, I would like to ask you, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, thank um Thank you. I think, first of all, the uh, the context of what I'm I'm working in is perhaps more interesting than the day to day. What are you working on? <laughs> I think the broader topic, um, and what we work on at the Center for Sport and Human Rights is embedding human rights across the whole world of sport, and that means ensuring that sports bodies and federations have the right processes, policies, commitments in place to ensure they're not first of all, harming anybody, but also a walking the talk because sport talks a lot about the good things it promotes, the values of sport and these things. So making sure that sport is living up to its commitments and also that you can harness sport to promote human rights. There's the power of sporting events, the example that they can provide in different ways and also the profile of sport and athletes and the, the commercial power of sport also to drive um, greater awareness of of human rights and greater enjoyment of human rights by by rights holders mm -hmm. so this is this is a very new topic in a way it's a topic that has been in the international agenda in the spotlight for barely five six years is this is this right in different ways yeah i think one of the things we're aware of because we are at the sort of forefront of joining up lots of different agendas on sport and human rights and that's something that's been 
co- that we've been coordinating for four or five years. Mm-hmm. But there's been lots of parallel work on sport and human rights in different ways for a long time that maybe hasn't either seen itself as work on sport and human rights or not been connected with a a, a collective agenda on sport and human rights. Mm-hmm. So I think it's emerging as a sort of topic, but mm-hmm. the rights of athletes to... Um, the, the rights of athletes as workers is something that's been pursued for a very long time. The rights to participate in sport has been pursued for a long time. Um, if you go back to 1968 Olympic Games and the protests there by um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the, the podium, mm-hmm. sort of Olympians for Human Rights Movement was was there back then. Um, the role that sport and sporting boycotts played in ending apartheid in South Africa. So mm-hmm. there's been a long history of this, but I think increasingly awareness of the different stakeholders and actors involved in sport has, mm-hmm. and, and particularly this is since the UN Guiding Principles came in, given a framework for local organizing committees, sports organizations, sponsors, etc., to see their role in the human rights issues that are connected with sport. And that that's the, think, the, the new thing that's the common thread. Mm-hmm. That, does having a, a tag or like a catchy name uh, helps with putting um, uh, to putting issues in the agenda to have much more um, you know policy attention, but also funding attention, and uh, you know being able to create a, a, a whole institution working on it, like your mm-hmm. your center. No, I think I think they need you need the uh, the narrative, but you also need the the wind at your back to set something like this up. You need a moment where these things become interesting to those who have the power to create them. And mm-hmm. that, I think, particularly around 2015, when we st- first started having these conversations, you're coming out of a period where there was big corruption crisis in sport. Mm-hmm. You're coming out of uh, awarding of sports events to controversial places with real human rights impacts attached to those events, whether it's Russia in 2018 or Qatar in 2022. Those things really mobilized the interest of sponsors whose reputations were concerned. Mm -hmm. And when you get powerful actors starting to align behind the idea that standards should rise in one particular area, it makes raising money for those things easier. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think, created a, a moment of opportunity there. And governments, too, looking at how sports bodies are run and looking at the, you know, some of the corruption elements that were involved in how sporting organizations um, operated opened a window of opportunity. And then for a long time, you've had the likes of, of, of human rights organizations looking at sport as a potential tool to promote human rights, too. So whether that's trade unions looking at what can be advanced through the hosting of an event or um, NGOs or national human rights institutions looking at what could be achieved or promoted or the spotlight brought on through mm-hmm. through sport. Because we, we've had a bit of a perfect storm now with uh, um, uh, the spotlight on the corruption and the dysfunctionality of uh, some of the sporting federations and then the um, hosting of events in countries that um, have very poor human rights records. So in some point, I guess, a, a very diverse group of people that were um, working on, on different elements of this have been able to come together mm-hmm. under this joint agenda. That's, ex- so. that's exactly it. And I think as a small human rights organization, we have very limited leverage and power ourselves. And I think always you look for ways to get those who have power to give a little bit of it up. 
you know, and, and they, ne they won't necessarily do so unless it's in their interest also. But you see an increasing drive for accountability, for um, ensuring that these events have a positive impact in the places they're held to ensure that sport is harm-free for participants, mm -hmm. stuff like this. Because if, they do, if the world of sport does not do that, it risks losing nearly everything that makes it special. You know, parents won't bring their kids to sport anymore if sport is not safe for kids to participate in. Mm -hmm. People will not will stop watching sport on TV if they think it's associated with some of the things that have been been associated with sports federations and with with the the places they've been held. Mm -hmm. So, um, how did you get to this um, to work on this? Because uh, today in in the class with our students, uh, you had a very direct question of uh, if I wanted to work on sports and human rights, what do I have to do? And this is the question that we face, and and uh, this is the question that drives as well these conversations that we're having in the podcast, the rights of others. Uh, how how do you get to work in human rights, and how do you get to work in such a specialized field in this? case, if I was a third year student or an LLM student, I was sitting there listening to this really interesting sports and human rights talk, I would say, oh, I want to be that guy. Mm -hmm. I want to be the guy working on this. So how did you end up being the guy working on this? Well, I think a lot of it's being in, in the right place at the right time and just being, um, you know, having the right uh skills i suppose that that makes you attractive at that time for people doing the work that's that's emerging but i, I think for most of these things it's, it's extremely competitive it's very difficult to to find opportunities to work directly on human rights issues um, and most of the people i know who who work in this this field feel very lucky to do so because i think many many people feel a compulsion or a, a drive to work in a way that does advance the rights of others, maybe directly, maybe indirectly. I think lots of people would like the opportunity to do so because it's it's rewarding, personally. But the, the, the number of opportunities available to do that are limited. And I think those of us who are lucky enough to work in that field, and I'm sure you're the same, mm -hmm. feel lucky to have that opportunity. So, so when you say, you know, being in the right place at the right moment, you in a way, you put yourself in the right place and you put yourself with the right skills, yeah. even though you weren't necessarily planning. And I think this is part part of this profession has to do with other more established professions. And we'll talk about whether this is a profession. But, um, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, a solicitor, if you want to be a barrister, you know what you have to do. You have to get very good grades and then you have to go do you, this course, the other course, a privilege, etc. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you know which skills you need for that. Yeah. But to work in uh, in the kind of role that you have or uh, as uh, um, the role that uh, other um, uh, people that have come to talk to us here have... You, is a bit blind trying to get this skill. It is, so. and, and I'm not sure you necessarily know until you're there in some ways because mm -hmm. it's it's not necessarily transparent or accessible. There's very there's a lot of niches involved, and the the career path to get in is one not clear how you enter, and two not necessarily clear how you progress. Mm -hmm. um, and that's I think just a fact of the the human rights space and in some ways that takes advantage of people who are very keen to work on 
these things because you know there's a lot of unpaid internships in human rights, for example, which is scandalous in itself. Yeah. But the, the people are prepared to make compromises themselves to work in something they feel connected to, and that's I think that the, the the broader environment relies on on that to an extent too, which doesn't necessarily help you because the actual opportunities are are really limited. And I, I mean, I would say that organizations that work on human rights issues need people with a wide range of skills. So mm -hmm. if you're a human rights organization, you need communication specialists. You need people who specialize in operations. You need people who specialize in human resources, in the whole range of things that make any organization tick. There are opportunities to do that in human rights in, in a human rights way that your efforts are actually directed towards something that does have a, a public benefit and in 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 some ways you know that that's a way in, in for, for, for some people as well is to look for different skill sets that organizations need yeah so um my question would be that um you said that it's it's a niche and it's a very new field um so i guess you went to the field and found out that what are the changes you can make in it so first and for all why sports you think are actually important when it comes to human rights mm -hmm. is it that it's just another field or do you think there are um, you know some unique aspects attached to sports when it comes to uh, doing some uh, human right efforts uh, through sports mm -hmm. no i i uh, i think there is something unique about sport in a good way. So I think sport can hide behind quite a lot. There's a lot of talk of the autonomy of sport, that sport gets a privileged position in society and in regulation that is because of its independence and its perceived independence. That has meant that the administrations and governance of sports bodies is often quite archaic and quite uh, lacking in accountability. And that creates space for bad decisions to be made or for harmful practices to develop and so there's a long way for sport itself to go in order to be harm free we've seen so many issues around whether it's child safeguarding about abuse around the land acquisitions that go with the the delivery of sporting events many of these things workers on construction sites and in supply chains all of these things happen in the world of sport but they happen outside the world of sport too but what you have in in the world of sport is institutions and values that sporting organizations and sporting movements talk about as being for the benefit of society, that talk about sport being a public good, that talk about the things that sport can generate. And so by coming with a human rights message into sport, you are helping sport be what it sets out itself to be. And if you start along that line, you ultimately have a very powerful tool, a cultural phenomenon in sport that can communicate rights to a huge number of people. People can, can learn and understand their rights and their how to enforce those rights and uphold them through the power of sport. And then you also have the, the, the fact there's so much prestige and um, attention on sports events, for example, to expect higher standards, to expect that these events and competitions are delivered to a higher standard than just a general project in the world that you can say that these are very competitive as a competitive process often to, to win the rights to host things um let's harness that and say let's let's have a sport event as the exemplar 
in terms of how it sources what it sources, in terms of the conditions that apply to the workers who work in the delivery of those events, that apply to pushing the boundaries of 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 what we would like to see good practice look like across the whole life cycle of, of an event, from its, its construction to its operations to the, the event itself, the experience of fans, communities, and others. And that's the opportunity, and I think that's because you can join up something like that with the historical movement for rights within sport. You create a platform that is quite attractive to different stakeholders, whether those are sports organizations, sponsors, those who broadcast events, those who fund them, those UN agencies that uphold and and, uh, and and sort of take care of human rights on the international level, that it becomes a platform for people to see their own mandates and agendas achieved through sport in a way that's just interesting because it's everybody likes sport. Yeah, so uh, one interesting term I heard uh, today was sports washing. And I think it would be really good if someone who has worked in the field from the point of view of the center who's working for human rights and working with the organization who are trying to do sports washing, that it would be good to actually get a bit of uh, introduction around this idea. Oh, sure. Um, sports washing has just become much more prominent on general agenda now. You see it in the news, in the sports media, that particularly states are looking to enhance their reputations through the hosting of sports events. So now, it's not a bad thing to use a big prestigious event to enhance your reputation. But the question is, is that event then complicit in presenting an untrue face of the host of that event or in even suppressing the reality of what's actually happening in that country? And you see it come up more and more as more and more sports events, which are expensive things to host, and the those who award the intellectual property rights to host them or the... the um, the properties of the sports event want a return on investment and the means they go to the highest bidder often. And so that takes sports events increasingly to places where human rights are not enjoyed as freely as they are in other places. Because that's one element that we can't forget, that this is this is a big money-making machine. Yeah. It's not just about the spirit of the sport. But, no, ab ab uh, absolutely. You know. So you can look at it as that opportunity, but there's the challenge there too, that there's a huge amount of money that washes in from sources that are questionable. And you see that as a way of, of laundering a reputation through something that has social power that sport has um, as a big risk. And it's a risk for the sports bodies to be attached to something like that. It's a risk for the sponsors. It's a risk for the, the, the other parties connected to the event um, to be somehow complicit in a regime laundering its reputation through hosting a sports event. And, and that is an interesting tension. You get that movement towards increasingly putting sports events in pretty troubling places at the same time as sports organizations increasingly adopting things like human rights policies, making human rights commitments, putting human rights in bidding requirements. And that move in two different directions creates a, a, a gap in the middle that just exposes everyone to risk and, and affected people, affected groups and rights holders at risk of of, uh, of abuse um, in the delivery of the events, is it? Are we seeing now this um, in this um, big sponsors, companies involved, broadcasters, etc. Um, 
when they weighed in the risks of being associated with a specific uh, uh, event or a specific country, etc. I guess before, A, wasn't a consideration that, that that was part of your due diligence for your own risk, mm-hmm. kind of like, is this going to be a problem for us? And uh, B, I guess the, the weight that the human rights element has in that their own uh, assessment of their risk, their reputation suffers is much, uh, is much greater now. Because uh, is it because uh, there's more organizations working on this? Is it because civil society has grown on this issue or the general public? Is this an interest of the general public as well? I I think the sports events take up a big focus in campaigning from NGOs. And that has become a good way to shine a light when the focus of the world is on someone that's hosting a sporting event. You've seen that for a, a number of years now. And that together with, I think real um, scrutiny on the fact that uh, the 2018 World Cup was awarded to Russia and 2022 to Qatar and the Olympic Games have been in Beijing and will again be in Beijing for the Winter Games. These types of um, awarding of events to these types of places has created popular interest in the conditions by which those events are, are taking place and that to an extent motivates sponsors, it motivates governments to look more closely at making sure that different actors are uh, taking your human rights responsibility seriously and actually um, living up to them. And do people care if they drink a, a popular fizzy drink or whether this fizzy drink is a sponsoring an uh, event in, um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example? Is it something that we as people who are really focused on the issue and really focused on the on the uh, you know way to approach it are obsessed with and assume or or is it actually a real concern a social concern i mean i, I think it's more a concern from the company than the consumer mm-hmm. i think you, you, people have looked at consumer behavior for a long time and it's always pretty limited the impact of consumer concerns on you know that's that's where you'd hope they, they that's that's where you would hope that mm-hmm. people are ethical and informed consumers that's not necessarily the case and i don't think it necessarily has an impact on the bottom line in that way i think it's much more reputation investors are interested in this they see it as a way to to to, to gauge risk in the the business's operations by looking at its areas of where it operates um yeah i'm not i'm not sure it's consumers mm-hmm. so this might be a good point to uh do this exercise which you just did when uh, just earlier before this podcast about few dilemmas we have around these bodies and then they uh awarding these uh sports events to different countries which have a potential or we know that they have uh, serious human uh, right abuse going on. So shall we? Shall we? Uh, you know, talk about these. Dilemmas? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, there's there's dilemmas everywhere in this, and it's the okay. same. I mean, the thing that makes sport interesting is it's the same human rights issues as it's it's, it's a good case study or example for the types of dilemmas that exist anywhere in the business and human rights field. You can find exactly the same potential rights at risk. And also the types of conduct and behavior from from different state and non-state actors, it's just in a in a sports world, uh, which makes it interesting. But say, um, 
say you are a, a broadcaster and you are filming a, a, a sports event, say a tennis match or something, in a particular country where free expression is not permissible, or potentially if you do express yourself freely or the, as the media, there are consequences for your staff. Say you're filming a tennis match and a, a protest starts, a pro-democracy protest starts. Do you keep the camera on that? You're there as a sports broadcaster. You're not there as, a, as, a, as, as the news. Do your commentators address this issue in their commentary? And I think you, you would hope yes, but also they must be thinking about the safety of their staff on the ground and the potential consequences for doing so. And you get dilemmas like this that mean actually thinking about human rights in a really operational way in how you train the people you put on TV or the people who hold the cameras can have a, a big impact in making the right decisions that minimize the risk to the staff, but also fulfill your, your duties to, to report freely. Um, when we put this question to our students today, um, uh, William did a very interesting exercise in which he l lined us into different parts of the room, depending on whether you would um, agree that, for example, as a broadcaster, you should keep the camera on the protest or you should take it away. Obviously, our first instinct was to all go to the uh, side of the room where we'll keep the camera on the protest, we'll tell the world what's happening and the reporter would immediately talk about the, the political problem that uh, the protesters were trying to um, uh, gain uh, or provide awareness of. And then uh, uh, we start exploring these risks, the risks for the people, the risks for the... Um, uh, uh, even legal risks as, um, as an operator that you have under your contract, etc. And then I wouldn't say that uh, there was too much movement to the other side of the room, but it was definitely some wiggling mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And these are real, real dilemmas that, say, a broadcaster is wrestling with. But... You also have to think about the practical things you can do as someone associated with an event somewhere that may not be where you'd want it to be taking place. What questions do you ask as a business? What questions do you ask of the suppliers you're working with, the hotel you're staying in? Are you asking the services you engage if they are properly paying the people who work in delivering that service to you? Are those people being recruited in the right way? There's, there's leverage that you can use by engaging in in these events too, that go beyond just the really obvious thing of the, the on-screen dilemma. I mean, the, 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 a big dilemma that I'm sure a lot of people would think about is should FIFA have awarded the 2022 World Cup to Qatar? That's, that's one that will polarize too. Mm -hmm. You know, you could say that the human rights situation in Qatar at the point at which that competition was awarded would make that something that, that should not have happened. And especially into to do with enforcement of, of labor rights. But on the other hand, you can look at an event like this actually having a legacy in improving labor rights within their country and creating a good example within the, the organization that's delivering the event of what can be achieved in that country, even though it's in a relatively contained, um, contained environment. So you can look at these events as a way to, you know, sh should, should the all sports events just be taking place in Western European countries, or, you know, or, yeah. you know, it, it, we supposedly liberal democracies exactly. where nothing happens. Yeah. So everywhere's got, everywhere's got, everywhere's problematic, but should you not go to challenging places and where they have a vision for trying how to use them, or if not a vision for how to use them, where pressure will ensure that they do 
achieve some change through the scrutiny that's brought upon them from hosting an event like that. So I think that's that's the question. And the, the question is, what do you expect of hosts of these events? And, the, and really, we should all be insisting the very highest standards apply, because these are, it's not like building a piece of essential public infrastructure. This is building, this is an optional endeavor to choose to host a big sporting event. It's very prestigious, mm -hmm. it's competitive. Let's expect the highest standards in doing so and create good examples and case studies and, and pilot projects that could be spread within the country and let's try and achieve something with them. That's, that's what I think we should be doing. So there's an example, I think, which comes in my mind, which I can talk about. Uh, so as when you mentioned about um, should the broadcaster continue, uh, there are two aspects to that, which I think, and please correct me if I'm uh, not on track. Um, it allows you to think how you are training people as with respect to human rights. So it increases a lot of awareness. And this is a good way, good point to backtrack certain policies in these big sporting events. So it's a brilliant question and a point. But let's say if we have trained people and then they are, you know, working over there, uh, there could be real risks to people's life at that point because it has happened. One of the events which was going on in Pakistan, um, there was a risk of not continuing. So... Uh, the, the the comparison would be that, let's say, if we are sitting here and we do believe, and yes, I mean, personally, I do believe that we should definitely be you know, showing it, but as a case study, as a scenario, the question at that point would be, are you willing to risk your life uh, at that point uh, as an employee, even though you have every training in human rights? Mm. Because what happened is that then they get attacked, and this was, I think, in two thousand. And eight and nine, please, uh, in Lahore and Kazafi Stadium, there was an attack on the cricket team itself. And and that's exactly it. Someone lost their leg. And I think it, it also created a lot of public safety problem. So it was it was so it, it's it's a bigger dilemma at that point that human rights. Yes. But then it creates a lot of violence yeah. around it. I mean, I mean, these things are. As in, yeah. Well, surely the priority is everybody's safety to start with. That's, that's um, I think, got to be the number one concern in, in, in that case and in, in, the, in the example of the broadcaster that, yes, take a stand, but if it's safe to do so. Okay. And, I mean, that, I think that would be, be my position anyway. And, and then the second aspect of that, what happened is that because of that, uh, ICC cricket stopped awarding uh, any events to Pakistan. And... Due to that, there you can see literally uh, the stadiums, the economy around the stadiums, the interest which people had around playing sports coming together, uh, economic problems, mental health issues around these scenarios as 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 low self esteem as a nation mm -hmm. starts to build in, and uh, over the decades it was really uh, felt uh, in 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 the country because. Cricket was one of the only positive, engaging motivators. It just happened, and that mm -hmm. just was taken away. So, I I don't know. Like it's an interesting uh, perspective which you were saying. And then as they started awarding, it it kind of started recovering. So I can see this one example, but of course there is no empirical studies done on this. It's more 
uh, of what mm-hmm. I've heard and seen and uh, you know. And, and we also about. we also shouldn't go necessarily too far in expecting sports federations to be everything. You know, yes, there's a good there's a good opportunity here, and that's what we're looking at. But the the, the duty bearers are always the states, and that's that's where you know these things should be upheld and regulated and laws enforced by by the state and that that should make it easy for for sports to operate everywhere if governments were doing all what they what they should this um i would like to pick up uh, on this idea of safety and safety for for those who take a stand and uh, it's a debate that we've had before here in the rights of others about uh, the difference between uh, being a human rights defender, a human rights activist, a human rights prof- quote-unquote professional, and to what extent we definitely cannot call ourselves human rights defenders whatsoever because we're not at risk, we're not defending our life, security, those of our families or our homes. But uh, uh, And in my case, I wouldn't consider myself a human rights activist because uh, I am very cozy in my um, uh, <laughs> professor um, room with all my papers and emails, but uh, but a human rights professional or or someone that works in this profession. So we're not facing these safety risks. Uh, we are, in a way, in a profession that, as we've talked before, it's not necessarily a human rights profession in your everyday life because. You know, you you've mentioned that you do mostly project management, while I do mostly a fire putting putting off fires, academic fires. Um, so, what what is it to be a human rights professional for you? Is this is this um, a vocation? Is this a, a, you just happen to fall into a human rights organization while doing something that you like, which is you know this this everyday work that you like? What does it mean for you to be working for the rights of others? No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I think I said earlier that I'm sure many people have the impetus to want to work for the rights of others and do so in lots of different ways, whether it's as as doctors or teachers or many other functions that help sort of society at large. It's it's um it's something where I think the idea of a human rights professional as a sector is growing because you see increasingly like everything driven by the private sector, you see companies now hiring human rights experts to advise them on human rights and their policies and practices. And I think that is creating opportunity for people who have a human rights training and background that wasn't there 10 years ago. And that's advising a broader variety of different actors on on, on human rights. So that's that's growing. Um, yeah, I think... Um, yeah. So, what what are you? Are you are you a human rights professional? Yes, because my daily work is to develop projects and uh, activities that have an impact on improving human rights. But the, I mean, it's a comfortable place to be because you're one step removed. Mm-hmm. And I know. I mean, one of the things I think that makes the work that you and I do sustainable is the fact it is that one step removed mm-hmm. because people I know yeah. who work really at the coalface of human rights or either if not human rights defenders then working with human rights defenders or working with people whose rights have been infringed that takes a big personal toll yeah, and so the right. people the people I know who've worked on immigration cases or child abuse cases as lawyers who are very close to people who have been harmed the sort of personal impact of that 
really cannot be understated. The level of support that's needed for people who work directly on these types of issues needs to be high. Um, to work one step removed at a more policy level, it gives you that insulation from that sort of personal impact. I think it means you can work without as much personal consequence. You have less at stake or you have less invested in mm -hmm. some way, but it means that you can not burn out doing it because mm -hmm. I think I think the, the, there's real courage to, to engage with pain and harm on a daily basis and yeah. to be a little bit removed from that, which is what I guess a human rights professional implies, um, is a more sustainable choice and maybe it's it's not as bold as people who do that sort of work out the coal face but um it's it, it has a value in a broader systemic way too that that you know change happens in lots of different ways but um yeah, yeah. there's lots of different ways to work on human rights you brought a really a, a positive uh, um spin to my feeling of guilt that i always have when i think of uh I, I always feel slightly as an imposter in a way in terms of like trying to say that I work for human rights because um, I, I never, I'm never really sure what kind of impact this makes and if uh, is it all for just getting more reads or more... Um, more, more clicks. <laughs> yeah, more clicks or more, in my case, more footnotes referring yeah. to an article uh, and, uh, you know, so... Actually, I think this idea of the systemic change needs people who are, who are in a way as well. I mean, often I think, again, given the environments we work in, you see a lot of, at this level of working that one step removed from real human rights impact, it's a lot of people who have had advantages and privileges in life to allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's also a problem that needs, you know, needs greater access two people with a greater diversity of backgrounds. And I think it's still exclusionary in a way because it is a sought-after position to be in to be working in human rights because you're working for something that gives you a you know, sense of personal satisfaction, which I think everybody would want in their work, but not everybody can find. And it's it's still something that's, that's, that's got cachet to it that people, mm -hmm. um, people look for. And um, th there's just not enough access uh, to that well um, it would be great to maybe uh, listen to your journey when you were you have studied law if I'm mm -hmm. correct yes so you were a law student and you you know have your day-to-day -day life and you're thinking about you know, different issues around the world around your environment and then your journey from there into one of your first or second uh, real life jobs around human rights that would be you know. No, I, I, and I don't think you can you can say it's always just from a selfless mission. You know, you want to do something that you care about, and that's almost that's also got a personal motivation to it. You want to do you you know if you like everybody when you're looking for different routes in life, you want to find something that's rewarding for you in the way that you want to be rewarded. Some people look for things that will give them the greatest financial rewards. Some people look for things that will give them the greatest lifestyle compromise. You know, you, you look for the things that you think suit you personally and will will, will make you, I think, yeah, most um, content in the work you're doing. So, so how, how did you know that it didn't suit you personally to be sitting in a, a big law firm earning a lot of money? <laughs> 
because I tried it. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, so that, why did you try it? Did you try it because you thought you had to try it to, to see what the profession was in general? Or did you try it because uh, there's, there's, it's kind of a, the natural way to go after you finish your law degree? Because if you have, you know, a certain level of, um, and this, this comes from being, you know, it's a certain level of privilege that allows you insight into how things work, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't necessarily have. And if you, uh, you know, lucky enough to be in a position where you have friends, where you have the sort of context within which you, you, you're living and, and, and studying allows you insights into how these things really work. You see that the value of credentials is important. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying there's anything actually transferable between what you do in a corporate law firm for two years when you're 24 to what you do 10 years later. The credential still stands, and that's the world we. I mean, it's, it's 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 a system of, I guess, how the employment market operates, particularly at the moment, that overvalues credentials. Mm-hmm. But I think, but you know, you're, if you're aware that these credentials are valued, then it's it's something that you think will help you, give you that uh, platform to do something you are interested in doing later. And so that's it's a it's a compromised view, but it's it's also realistic that. Sometimes you can't just straight away pursue the thing you want to do, but you see what's got value in the in the broader marketplace mm-hmm. and try and, and develop skills in that way. Um, so how well, how did you know that this was something that you wanted to to work in? Apart from you know, it's something that will give you satisfaction. But how did you know you? You didn't want to be a corporate lawyer because you were you you tried it you were there you didn't want to be uh, like going around defending uh, or just like you know going inside a war zone trying to get children out of the rubble. But uh, how did you know or did you just come to this job and yeah. think actually this is pretty good? Or, or did no, you I, look I, for this? I don't I don't I don't know if people do know right. You mm-hmm. just you just um, you look for. You try and maximize the options available to you, and then you look for the options that you think will take you down the right road. And that's, I think, how you know. I think most people would operate in that way: that you you look for what's going to open the most doors for me, and what's going to create opportunities for me to do things that that will be rewarding. And for me, as someone with an interest, it, it, a big interest in. Uh, in human rights from a, from a long time ago, from from you know university and before, with a passion for sport, uh, you look for the organisations talking about these topics and mm-hmm. try and put yourself in a position to um, be employable by them. And that that's mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's the sort of long term story of it. That it's it's doing the research on who's doing things you like doing and finding the people who are doing that work mm-hmm. and getting in contact with them and pushing pushing yourself through those doors because they're not necessarily easy to find or open to everybody. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's just that, I think. Good. Great, great. Olga, do you have any more? Well, I, I just wanted to ask, just uh, explore a little bit this idea of the, that we mentioned first at the beginning, this unpaid internship idea. Whether it's like, to what extent this is a profession in which we're all doing it as well because we like it, we want it, we believe in it, but to some extent there's some kind of uh, self-pushing and like, 
you know, all the sudden worse situation than us, should I not push myself a little bit more to do a little bit more today to finish this report, to, to, to finish reading this, to finish learning about this? Uh, there is a bit of uh, this shame, I think, we have sometimes in not be working hard enough because the the issues as well are so urgent yep. you know it's like uh, uh, because obviously if we don't uh, if we don't stay one more hour reading a report nobody's going to die in principle they're, they're going to die anyway in terms of like you know the person who might be there to avoid their death is not us uh, or that injury or that but uh, but but there is a sen- uh, some kind of sense of you know shame sometimes or like need for self pushing some more and I think the quote-unquote industry a lot of the civil society industry uh, quote-unquote or international organizations government policy and all that they take advantage of this Mm -hmm. in terms of like well there is this horde of young people willing to work for free Mm -hmm. that highly qualified with lots of uh, uh, you see every vacancy in the whole sector will yeah. attract hundreds of extremely qualified people. Yes, yeah. Um, and there is, you know, you hear from people you know that organizations within the human rights world have some of the worst working conditions and employee happiness because yeah. of how they they push for results. And, from, and, and, you know, and often the benefits are not high financially. Often the personal compromises you make are high. And that personal commitment that people have is taken advantage of and that's that's something you think as people who work in human rights you have to actively take on a responsibility for people who you work with and who work for you to promote a good and healthy culture within organizations and that's something i think that is incumbent upon all of us working in human rights that you look close you know you start close to home human rights are in the small places and you look at just the people working around you and make sure that you know, your organization is set up well, that, you know, the, the, the things you advocate for are, are, are right there um, in your organization and with the people you work with and that you give them, you know, life is complicated for lots of people and, and complicated for everybody at some points and organizations should have the space to accommodate the ups and downs in people's lives too, that have some flex and be human because there's not enough... Um, yeah, there's not there's not enough being human about how organizations operate, even in the human rights space. Yes, and no, that's totally especially agree. so sometimes. I'm very proud that um, in the uh, business, human rights, and the environment research group that I run, the BHRA, uh, I I get interns quite a lot and students that want to help, and I always say no, but I'll I'll have to pay you. And in some occasions, I say to the students, I'm sorry, but I can't pay now because I don't have any any funding. And I say, don't worry, don't worry, I'll I'll work for. It's like I don't I'm not doing it for the pay. I'm when I, I want to work for free and I say I'm so sorry I can't yep. I can't not give you this work for free because you can't be working on labor rights while, <laughs> while I don't have any capacity yeah. to protect your rights absolutely so I'm very proud of this and I lose opportunities I'm sorry to my friends my students when I don't have uh, enough uh, money to pay for uh, uh, crappy internships but uh, but yes yeah, so that that is very important and I think what you said uh, it's, it's very important and it's something that will 
we will explore in some other in in some other episodes probably as well like how this is not necessarily a field that is kind to uh women or mm -hmm. kind to uh ethnic and religious minorities or kind of any yeah. kind of uh, diverse um stuff so yeah, and you you talk about advocating for you know, e equality and diversity within the structures of, of uh, corporate structures or governments or those with power in the in the world. But, you know, you need to look at that in our own organizations too, because it's it's not only the, you know, the right thing to do, it also makes you an, a stronger organization that is better prepared for anything that a diversity of perspectives brings you. And we have to work for that, yeah, work for that at home first. Yeah, um, agreed. Brilliant, Olga. I would love to do internship at well, you know, like <laughs> you How much are you paying? Well, <laughs> I pay the university oh, okay. rate, okay. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> which no, is a good way for me to say someone else is exploiting you rather than me. <laughs> I think one one of the things you've touched on is is roots. I mean, and I know this podcast is aimed at students in in, in Greenwich as well, but the how you can work in human rights from people studying human rights at university. And I think one way to look at it, because we, well, the way we talk about human rights as people who, particularly in the business and human rights agenda, is you want to embed human rights in the way that businesses operate. You want to embed human rights in the way that, that not that it's a, a separate sort of idea of social responsibility that exists separately from how a, a corporation or an entity runs, how it makes its money, how it treats its staff. It's, it's something to be integrated. And that means that people working across organizations need to be attuned to human rights. So you can be having a positive impact on human rights as a procurement manager. And that's, I mean, some of the biggest impacts you see on human rights at a practical level are not from people working on policies and programs and multi-stakeholder initiatives and all this stuff. It's people who are signing the contracts with recruitment agencies in a hotel business who are saying, no, no, we're paying for this recruitment and we're only engaging with recruitment companies that will ensure that the workers are, are, are not paying the costs or extorted in the recruitment process. Or you, you know, you, the, the people who say, okay, I'm going to do the due diligence on the suppliers that I in, in, engage with. And that's a way for people going into different entry points and different careers to take on the human rights education they learn at, at university. And take it into the different fields they have and bring that into whatever whatever subject or or profession you go into and build that it's not it's not lost or disconnected if you don't end up working directly on human rights issues you can still take that and in every organization where positive change happens it's because there are individuals in those organizations who are prepared to be bold themselves or you know just you know people who are prepared to put themselves on a limb to take a stand, to push an idea. And that stuff does have an impact and possibly a bigger impact sometimes than than those of us who work exclusively on human rights. So I think that's something to think about as, as people look moving into the workplace, I suppose, from, from university. I've studied business for six years in market. There was not even a single word of human rights, not even a single word in any of the banking, corporations, finance, any book. So I guess it's a I think, very, it's, I think that's changing. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's changed. There is a lot of words now. The, the fact that uh, to what extent students are learning in business courses to um, to talk about it rather 
not sure to what extent they learn it to might, do it. Might still but, be in PR courses. Yes, but, but yeah. Yes. No, but it's very interesting. It, 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 it has changed, so. That's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, well, and just uh, uh, my last question is like, uh, what is next? What is next in the agenda of uh, sports and human rights? Well, well, what are the next things we're going to be listening about having to work on and being conscious of? I, I think sort of big picture level, you want to see sport used as a tool to promote human rights. So but if we if we look beyond the idea that sport shouldn't harm people, which is just non-negotiable, and that's what sport needs to be doing with no sense of, of you know, shouldn't need to be pushed to do so. But the idea that you can use sport, whether it's participation in sport or the hosting and delivery of sports events, as something that actually advances rights, that helps move policies that helps um, advance development and, and progress towards sustainable development goals, that you start to see sport as a real enabler of progress in human rights terms. And and that's that requires lo- lots of things, but it, you know, it requires accountability from, from those who deliver these programs. It requires foresight from those who regulate them. It requires pressure from those who can put pressure, um, leverage to be used from those who have leverage, like, like corporate partners and others but that's that's where i think one wants to get to is to see not only sport as a potential risk which it is but it's far from the worst thing in the world but it's more than just a risk at the opportunity and i mean you need to get your own house in order as a sector before you can use that opportunity and that platform but i think that's the idea that brings the support from big institutions whose mandate is to promote human rights, like the ILO, the UN Human Rights Office, see sport in the long run as a not just an area of risk, but a, a platform for um, promoting rights. And that's that's where you look to, to try and find opportunities. And what do we do as uh, non-professionals of this? How can any of us like be... Uh, you know, influences um, this sphere as well. Like in our everyday lives, just uh, go take the bus and go <laughs> to your workplace and uh, and uh, have this in mind or being able to demand well, some change. I think always the, uh, the the power we have is to is to ask questions and apply our own scrutiny to things. And if if that means, you know, asking. What, how a a sports body? You know, if you're taking your kids to a sports event, you know what? How is that sports organisation that's putting on that event run? I mean, ask like ask the question. What I mean, I'm sure things like safeguarding are top of mind, but that's been missing for a long time. But also, what level of diversity is this this sports body? Uh, you know, in the sports body's governance, where's it's getting its money from? And that the impetus is on all of us to scrutinize. And I think that's the same for nearly everything. Um, being aware of, you know, increasing awareness and asking questions is is one thing you can do with little power that, that still has an impact. Brilliant. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, William. Thank you so much. It's great Thank to, you. to have had this conversation. <laughs> yes, Bye. Yes. Bye, Russell. Thank you. Thank See you, guys. Time. Bye. Bye.